This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend political warriors. A lot of stuff going on in the state capitol this week. Item number one, we may have a deal between Governor Gretchen Whitmer and the Michigan legislature on the budget for the current fiscal year, which is called fiscal year 2020 because it ends next September 30th, 2020. It began on October 1st, 2019. And as I think everybody listening to this program knows, the governor vetoed nearly $1 billion in line items, 147 of them, early in October. And she also shuffled around some money, $630 million, within departments uh, to spend in a way that she wanted it spent rather than the legislature. The legislature didn't like that. And there's been an impasse for over two months in terms of are these budget cut resources going to be restored by the legislature passing what is called a supplemental bill that would be signed by the governor? And is there going to be some kind of agreement between the governor and the legislature as to how much in the future she can shuffle around money that they've sent her in appropriations bills within departments to spend in ways she wants rather than the way the legislature intended. And as a result, I mean, there are a bunch of programs, uh, secondary road patrols, let's say, for sheriff's departments, autism navigator program, uh, rural schools and hospitals that have been starved for funding, haven't gotten anything since October 1st, waiting to see if there can be some kind of resolution. Well, it looks like they finally are on the cusp, the governor and legislature, of agreeing to restore at least $573.5 million of the cuts the governor made. Now, that's just over half of the cuts she made. And the question is, by the end of the year, uh, can they restore all of the cuts? And are they going to get some kind of an agreement with the governor on her powers to use the administrative board to shuffle around money within departments? So it looks like something is about to happen. Bills have already been introduced and have actually inched their way through one or both chambers so far, but there's a lot of work left to be done. People are cautiously optimistic is the phrase. Item number two, the governor appointed Renee Kanaki. Who is she? She will be the new eighth member of the Michigan State University Board of Trustees to fill a vacancy. She is a University of Houston law professor, but she taught for 10 years at Michigan State University Law School. She replaces Nancy Slishting, who resigned earlier this year, having been appointed by Governor Rick Snyder, serving only 10 months, never really fitting into the board. She resigned. And now Renee Kanaki, who's an attorney who has a strong record of defending women's sexual assault complaints in the courts 
and through litigation will be a new member of the board. Item number three, Oakland County Circuit Judge Daniel P. O'Brien said that the Republican challenge to the legality of Dave Coulter as the Oakland County executive is dismissed. Uh, He, this is the judge, says uh, no matter how messy the process was in selecting Coulter several months ago, his appointment was legal and valid. He continues as the Oakland County executive, replacing the late Brooks Patterson. Coulter will serve at least through the end of next year and will be running, I'm sure, for a full term, likely to be challenged by Oakland County Treasurer Andy Meisner, a Democrat who has long eyed this post of county executive. So there will be a huge Democratic primary, it appears, at this point next summer. And then the question is, do the Republicans have a chance to actually win this in November? I mean, they've had Oakland County executive under Republican control for four decades. And it appears now as though the tables have turned to such an extent in terms of partisan affiliation in Oakland County that the Republicans aren't given much of a chance to win it. We'll find out. Item number four, the trial in federal court involving three felony charges against State Representative Larry Inman, Republican of Williamsburg, just northeast of Traverse City, on charges of extortion, attempted bribery, and lying to the FBI continues. And also petitions that were filed by people who want to recall Larry Inman and want a recall election and were thrown out by the state last week as being incorrectly worded. A word was missing. Another word was misspelled is being challenged by the petitioners in court. And I think they have a good chance to win. We'll find out if they win. There could be a special recall election involving Larry Inman, regardless of what happens, perhaps, in this trial. And also, in abeyance, is the possibility that the House of Representatives might move to expel Representative Inman. They have asked him to resign He has refused so far, but he might cave in and do it. Uh, Other things this week, item number five, 12 lawmakers, 11 Republicans, and one Democrat, Terry Sabo from Muskegon. That makes it bipartisan. Uh, 12 of them, all in districts in the State House of Representatives lining the shores of Lake Michigan, have asked, Governor Gretchen Whitmer to declare an emergency involving the Lake Michigan shoreline. Lakeshore erosion has been so pronounced as a result of rising water, whether it's climate change or something else, whatever, but there have been hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions really in property damage involving homes business enterprises all along the shore of Lake Michigan in western Michigan from Berrien County all the way up to Leelanau and even northeast of that. 
going up toward the straits, and these lawmakers are asking for a state of emergency. Item number six, a proposed class action lawsuit alleging thousands of Michigan residents were falsely accused of unemployment insurance fraud and should receive compensation can move forward, says the State Court of Appeals. This happened five years ago under Governor Rick Snyder when a terrible mistake was made in the computer system of the state of Michigan, and they charged 36 or 37,000 people of unemployment insurance fraud, and then these people were forced to try and repay what they supposedly illegally took with interest to such an extent that people lost their homes, they went into bankruptcy, a lot of suffering, and there has been litigation pending from these aggrieved, unjustly accused victims of the snafu on unemployment insurance pending all this time. The state, under Rick Snyder and Attorney General Bill Schuette, fought back against the litigants claiming the suit should be thrown out. Now it looks like it's going to move forward. Does the state accept a verdict? If this ever goes to trial, or does the state try and settle? That's a tough call for Governor Whitmer and Attorney General Dana Nessel. We'll find out what happens. We'll be back in a minute with our first guest. Stay tuned. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned with Representative Tommy Brand. He is a Republican from Wyoming, and he represents the 77th House District. I think this is his second term. And the 77th includes the city of Wyoming and Byron Township, and it's kind of like the southwestern corner of Kent County. Is that correct, Representative Brand? Yeah, it's a little bit north of Grand Rapids. Oh, it's north of Grand Rapids. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. South of south Grand Rapids. Of... A little bit south. <laughs> okay, I thought I had it. Anyway, uh, look, you're on the Appropriations Committee. Is that correct? I am. Yeah. Well, today, though, I want to ask you about, to me, this fascinating legislation that I think you and Representative Bill Sowerby, who is a Democrat from Clinton Township in Macomb County, you're introducing um, involving what is called pet leasing. And I'd just like you to explain what this is, what's going on, why are you introducing this? Well, I really give um, Bill, Representative Sullivan, it's really his bill. But um, one of my um, area Granville's, not, I don't represent Granville, but it's a little bit west of Wyoming. Um, one, of, one of his constituents in Granville is actually going through this where she leased a pet from a Granville store and was surprised. First of all, I don't think she realized she was leasing. was surprised about the payments and the interest. And myself, as a, as a um, pet owner, I just know pets are um, they're part of the family. And she was really emotional about possibly losing her pet. And so she had to, she had to come up with a big payment to pay off the lease. And it's, to me, you, you lease a car. 
but you know, Lisa, pet, you know, pets are companions. Um, Governor Snyder signed my bill, HB 4332, Animal Cruelty Bill, um, last December, and um, he, um, in my bill had it, HB 4332 is your pet is not a piece of property anymore. Your pet is your companion, and um, and that's what, to me, it shouldn't be treated like a car. Yeah, it seems common sense to me what you're saying. Let, let me just ask you this. I'm just kind of curious from the stories sure. you've heard and from talking to Representative Sowerby and others, um, why do people lease pets? I mean, it, it, rather than just buy them, is it because they're kind of given a feeling by the pet store that has the pet up for acquisition by somebody that uh, if you don't have the money to pay right now, uh, you know, just put this much money down and you can pay for it over time. And they think, okay, we'll do it. And they don't realize they haven't really bought the pet. They have just leased the pet. And then they start getting these statements from the pet store, uh, not only asking for the rest of the money owed to the pet store, but interest. And it gets so expensive that the people can't afford to keep the pet anymore. Is that is that really what's going on? I, yes, and it, to me, it's like, again, I'm, you know, I'm worried about my constituents. I'm, you know, taking oath to protect your constituents, and to me, this is part of that oath because I'm worried about them being heartbroken on and their kids being heartbroken when they have to um, when their pets. I know it sounds really weird, but it gets repossessed. I mean, and I'm worried about the pet also. Uh, Pets couldn't be the dog or cat could be out of the comfort zone. So um, it, it just, I don't, it's not a healthy practice for the, for the dog or for the, um, the person leasing the dog because, again, it's a part of the family, and you know, we all know how dogs become, they are your companions. Um, look at Conan, the dog that um, helped on the terrorist attack. Uh, he was... I saw um, Vice President Pence patting them. They had a little attachment after 10 minutes, I mean, on TV. So I, as a dog owner, I get it. So I just I don't think it's a healthy practice. Yeah, how long has this been going on, do you know, as an industry, the pet leasing industry? I mean, I never even really knew this ha- existed. I don't. I, I didn't really know that much about it until Representative Sotheby came and brought it to, me, to my attention. You know, it's, again, it's his bill. And um, he came over to me, and um, he knew about my animal cootie bill and my and I, how I think um, you know dogs are such a you know they're so special for your family. So he came to me, and so I really didn't know that much about it until he came to me. So haven't some other states already taken action along the lines of what you and Representative Sowerby are proposing? I mean, they have banned pet leasing. Some other states. Uh, yeah, I believe you're right. Um, um, like Indiana, New York, California, Nevada, Washington, New Jersey, they banned it. So um, there's a reason they banned it. You know, so, so what I, does your legislation basically just say to pet stores or anybody who might be engaging in this conduct? Stop leasing. You can't do it anymore. If somebody comes in and wants a pet, you either sell them the pet or you don't sell them the pet on the spot. No more leasing. Is that basically it? it? It is. I mean, no more contracts like that. I mean, we have so many also good um, rescue centers and fishing is um, like Alto, Michigan, right right around our area here. And throughout the state of Michigan, I mean, 
Sue and I, you know, a lot of our pets have been rescued. A um, couple, Howie and Casey, who we love so much, two, dog, two labs were tied as puppies in a to- on a telephone pole in one of my um, Byron Township, and we rescued them. And they were with, Howie was with us for 16 years. So, I mean, there's other avenues to to get a to get a loving companion. Yeah, I mean, I've got a rescue dog myself. <laughs> okay, I have a rescue oh. dog. So I I know what you're talking about, but why would people uh, go to a pet store and and get a dog through a leasing arrangement when they can go to, as you say, refuges or rescue centers? Uh, Is it because some of these dogs are kind of maybe exotic, uh, thoroughbred dogs uh, that you can't get anywhere else and it's a particular kind of dog they want and the only way they can get it? from a store is maybe through a leasing arrangement where they don't have quite the amount of money they need up front to pay for it. And so they'll agree to take it on a lease basis and pay over time, not realizing how much that's going to cost. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean, the stores, like the Granville stores, convenient. Um, The rescue um, centers are aren't sometimes as convenient located, um, but there's ways you can get on the website. And um, so I think it's a little bit convenient, so I think that's a good point. But, I mean, a fancy-dancy dog or Howie, my mixed lab, that probably nobody else would have taken. Um, but I, mean, I loved him so much. I still miss Howie. Uh, so um, I, I think there's just no separation of love between your loving companion pet, whether it's a fancy-dancy dog from a pet store, they still love there, of course, or um, a rescue shell, uh, animal rescue dog. Um, so I, I think so I think it's, I wish people would, um, I don't think they know what they're getting into when they sign that contract. And maybe they take their kids with them and they, you know, of course there's going to still be a love for that dog in the pet store. And give them, you take them out there and give them some freedom and, and still love them, but I just don't think they, when they sign that contract, and that's what we want to clean up so they, they don't really get caught. Cause I don't want to see any family, um, their dog, I, mean, I don't want to see two kids crying when their dog is being taken away from them. I just don't want to see that. You're absolutely um, right. I think you're absolutely right. I'd love to talk to you more about this, but you're doing a, a great thing, I think, in introducing this legislation. This is Representative Tommy Brand, Republican of Wyoming. Thank you very much, Representative Brand, for your explanation about a ban proposed on pet leasing in Michigan. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned with another very impressive guest, and he is Joel Johnson. And he is the executive director of the Farm Service Agency of the United States Department of Agriculture, USDA. I like to call him Representative Johnson because he was a state representative for three two-year terms, I believe, through uh, 2016. I think he was elected in 2010. Is that correct? That that's correct. Okay, yeah. and and you represented the ninety seventh House District, and that included, I think, Gladwin, Aranac, Clare counties, and part of Osceola. Is that correct? That is correct. And also in your background, uh, you were general manager of Johnston Elevator, which was a 
feed manufacturing center that also sells farm and home supplies. And I think when you were in the House, uh, you served on as many as five committees, including the Agriculture Committee. Is that right? Uh, That is correct. Okay. Well, boy, you have got a big job now. Um, I'm not sure you ever thought when you were in the State House of Representatives, you'd end up being Executive Director of the Farm Service Agency for the USDA in Michigan. We talked last week to your counterpart, Jason Allen, a former state representative and state senator who is the head of what is called rural development of the USDA in Michigan. And as I understand it, that is the kind of economic development side of the USDA in Michigan. It's not really the growth, farming, everything you think of when you think of agriculture part of the USDA. Is that correct? Well, that's true, but uh, they are an important sister agency for us, and they, they do so much to to help our rural areas in Michigan. And, uh, you know, that's that's an important an important piece. Oh, absolutely. Well, I think you two work hand in glove. I, I was just surprised to hear Jason say that uh, the Rural Development Agency that he's the head of is responsible for building the Escanaba County Jail. <laughs> that is a bit of a surprise, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I mean uh, what does that have to do with agriculture? But anyway, you're, you're the real crop guy. You're the growing guy, the farmer guy. And as I understand it, Jason has about a 104 employees around the state and something like 10 different offices. Can you describe to me exactly what is the Farm Service Agency? How many employees do you have? How many offices? What do you do? Okay, yeah, thanks. We we have 49 county offices throughout the state, and we have our state office here in East Lansing. Um, we have about 240 of uh, our very well-trained uh employees throughout the state. We, our county offices are located uh, throughout the Mitten and also the UP, and we try to make it convenient so that producers can come in anywhere uh, to be able to sign up for FSA programs. Okay, when you say FSA programs, what are these programs? Ah, okay, very, very good. Well, you know, um, some of the things that we're dealing with, to, just, to, to give you a a little bit of background of what's going on this year. Uh, you know, you're probably aware, but farmers had a lot of trouble getting their crops planted. Right. You know, and, uh, yeah, because of the weather. Fields. Yeah. yeah. Um, we Just here in Michigan, uh, farmers reported over 920,000 acres of, of non-planted fields that they had intended to plant. So uh, very, very significant. Um, so, and, you know, Right now, we have uh, 43 counties in Michigan that have been designated as primary disaster areas, and um, those are because of the excessive rain, flooding, flash flooding, abnormally cold temperatures um, that have been experienced since March. But we also expect that there may be other primary disaster area designations for some of the other counties once we have harvest information in. But it's been a long a long season for for our producers, but you know some of the things that that we provide, uh, which would be some uh, there will be some disaster loans available, particularly due to the uh, the issues that we just talked about. Additionally, uh, we have our marketing our market facilitation program, Bill. You've probably heard of that uh, MFP 
right. be the, the buzz yeah. for that. But uh, that's part of the trade mitigation program, and uh, it's up to $14.5 billion nationwide in direct payments to farmers who've been affected by the unwarranted retaliatory tariffs on U.S. farm goods. Um, just a feel for that. Uh, now, that's expected to be made, the payments will be made in up to three tranches or portions. Um, the first payments went out in mid-August. Second payments began just a few weeks ago in late November. The third payments uh, would go out in early January if warranted. You know, uh, they look at what's going on with the markets. I have are we, um, are we in a different situation than we had been? And so that they'll be looking at that in early January to see if the third payments will go out. Uh, to give you an idea what it looks like in Michigan, Bill, um, the uh, 2019 payments that have been issued are in excess of $260 million and went to uh, 13,000 Michigan farmers. Wow. So well, that's that's pretty big. It is pretty big. Uh, let me ask you, before you took this job and your predecessor, let's go back two, three, four years, were payments of this sort uh, or of this magnitude made uh, or wasn't it necessary? This is maybe, as you just described, all because of the impact of retaliatory tariffs, you know, put on U.S. goods. This this is a totally new program, Bill. Yeah. Um, you know, so uh, while USDA has always had programs, this, this one is brand new. Wow. Well, what is the state of farming in Michigan? Uh, what is the psychology and, you know, the emotional state of farmers in Michigan. I mean, are they really beleaguered right now, not just because of the weather, but, you know, maybe because of the retaliatory tariffs, other factors? I mean, I get the sense that even though Michigan has this great reputation for farming and agriculture, that a lot of farmers out there are suffering. It's difficult, Bill. You know, uh, farmers are very resilient and uh, in general, they're optimists, and uh, you know, I, I get an opportunity to interact with a lot of them, and uh, you know, they, <clears throat> excuse me, as a whole, they really uh, they have a tendency to look for the bright spots, and uh, um, and they're they're great people to work with, but it is very difficult for them right now, and uh, and they're and they're feeling the stress. Um, you know, it, everyone deals with stress in different ways. But um, it's, you know, uh, I think we have to be especially uh, aware and uh, uh, really give some thought to what these people are going through right now as we work with them. What about uh, various different crops in Michigan? Has there been different uh, sorts of impact on farmers depending on the kind of crops uh, they grow or what? Absolutely. And uh, and that's how this program uh, was put together. Of course, we had a 2018 program, uh, and that was done a little differently. It was done on the actual um, yield of the of the particular crops that the farmers had. Um, this year, they they came out with the payment or with the program while farmers were still working on planting their fields, and they wanted to be very careful that the program didn't influence planting. You know, uh, our USDA programs are supposed to be there uh, to assist farmers, but not necessarily there so that the farmers would farm to the program. If 
you know what I mean. Right. Uh, you know, so uh, what they did is, it, is they came up with um, our the USDA chief economist looked at the amount of um, uh, impact that the retaliatory tariffs had on each crop, and then uh, and then his office looked at each county and said, okay, how much of each of these crops does this county historically produce? And then they assigned uh, a number, uh, a dollar value uh, to per acre that that was from averaged out numbers um, so that each county had a per acre payment and that per acre payment is... Yeah. Joel, let, let's yeah. take a break here. Um, I, I want to keep going on this uh, after the break. Uh, this is a very important explanation you're giving. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back And we have as our special guest, Joel Johnson. He is the executive director of the Farm Service Agency for the United States Department of Agriculture, USDA, in Michigan. And before I rudely interrupted him uh, because we had to take a break, he was explaining, you know, the process by which uh, there is some kind of compensation or whatever for people uh, farming who have been hurt. Um, economically, and uh, whether there's a difference uh, between, let's say, soybean producers and cherry producers or geographically or whatever. So, Mr. Johnson, just take it from there. Okay, yeah, thanks. And it is, it's a long, a long explanation, but, uh, you know, there, there is a difference between uh, each crop and there's there's specialty crops and non-specialty crops, and then there's also livestock that are all in the program. So, um, you know, you mentioned a specialty crop, uh, uh, the tart cherries, right? And so, or the sweet cherries. There's also issues with tart cherries going on. They're not part of the program, uh, huh. but uh, yeah. So uh, there are. And so when you look at this, this program was designed for. Uh, products that were impacted by the retaliatory tariffs, particularly from China. Um, and, you know, we've heard issues about tart cherries. That's a whole other subject and not something that, that I deal with. But uh, what we need to realize is there's been some issues with, with dumping from uh, other countries like Turkey, uh, and that has hurt the market uh, of tart cherries dramatically. And so it's not so much an issue about the retaliatory tariffs in China that's as much of a problem as as uh, for tart cherries. I see. As some of the other issues. But, yeah, so um, we have a whole list of specialty crops, which includes uh, sweet cherries uh, for uh, fresh markets and, um, uh, you know, things like that. And then we have our non-specialty crops, corn, soybeans, wheat, uh, those sorts of things. And then we also uh, have livestock for uh, so uh, milk production or for dairy and then also for hogs. Well, now, so, let me just ask you this. Livestock. Um, yeah. I can see how they might be impacted by tariffs, perhaps. But 
certainly livestock would be more immune from climate change and and problems with the weather than crops, wouldn't they? I mean, well, yeah, but the, the MFP program, <clears throat> we have we have we talked about the weather and we have issues. <clears throat> excuse me, we have programs to help with people. <clears throat> excuse me with people that have been affected by the weather. But MFP is nothing to do with the weather. It's strictly to do with the retaliatory tariffs. I see. Okay. Yep. Well, so, so, so geographically in the state, are, are there pockets of the state that have been more adversely affected by some of the things we've been talking about than other parts? Well, you know, um, that's the case. You know, you get into some of our areas that, have more pasture and uh, woodlands and that sort of thing, they obviously don't have the production of the crops that would be affected by the tariffs. And some areas, some counties have a history of producing a lot more of one crop than another. And so all those things were taken into effect when, or into account when the economist's office came up with the numbers. They had a, they had a formula that they plugged it into. Right. Well, now, uh, you said earlier, maybe I got the number wrong, but did you say you had 49 offices? We do. Wow. Around the state? I mean, we've got 83 counties. You've got almost, uh, you know, one office for every two counties. In some counties, there are not many people living. So that's a lot of offices. You're from Clare, and you say what? Your main office is in East Lansing? That's correct. So do you commute pretty much generally every day to East Lansing from Clare? Do you travel around the state to these offices? How do you cover well, this territory? The, most most days I'm in my office in East Lansing, but I do also uh, travel around and uh, and work with each county office and spend some time there. I I really think it's important to get to know what's going on in each county office. We have a group of district directors that work with those county offices, and they work directly with me as well. Um, but it's important for me to get out in those offices, actually get to, to work with the uh, employees and, and visit with some of the producers on a one-to-one basis. Now, we also have a county committee structure, which uh, each office has a county committee, which is actually growers from that area that have been elected by their their colleagues, other farmers, um, to represent them to to aid in making decisions regarding the programs there and that, how they're administered in that county. Let me ask you this question, and I asked it of um, Mr. Allen last week about the Rural Development Agency uh, that he heads, and that is his experience in the legislature. I mean, he was in the House, then he was uh, eight years in the Senate, Build up a lot of relationships. Um, he then went on to serve in the Veterans uh, Department under Governor Snyder. Uh, you you were three two-year terms in the House. I'm not sure how much other government experience you have, but did you find or have you found that your experience in the legislature has really kind of helped you in this job you have now in terms of relationships you're developing with people uh, or have developed with growers and farmers throughout the state or the ways in which you could interact with them? Yeah, I, I think it's been a big help for me, Bill. I, you know, um, I have a lot of relationships with people throughout the state. 
particularly in the ag industry, farmers and uh, other ag industry folks, grain elevators and uh, other suppliers and so forth. And it really helps me. If I'm visiting an area, I know someone that I can talk to that can tell me what's going on in that area. And um, also, I think one of the things that I've really picked up that has helped me has been the idea of needing to get a message out because, you know, many times their farmers have a tendency to be the people that put down, put their head down, go to work, and get the job done. They don't always know about all the areas that are out there to assist them when things get difficult. And so, um, having some of those relationships helps me in get that me- getting that message out. Um, so that farmers can have an idea that, hey, maybe FSA has got something that can help me. And uh, so so that really helps a lot. Right. Um, did you ever grow yourself? Were you a farmer before you became general manager of Johnston Elevator, or did no. you have livestock or anything like that? Yeah, I, I grew up on a livestock farm. My dad managed a corporate farm, and uh, and I worked for him all growing up and, and then uh, – uh, again, later on, in between uh, doing having a job with uh, selling uh, wholesale fertilizer and then going back into other areas, but uh, my whole idea, I always wanted to farm, but uh, it was a difficult time when I was that age, and uh, I decided that uh, I would rather serve farmers and and uh, sell to farmers than to to do it full time for myself, but I, I've always had that farming in my in my blood, and so I have a little farm in uh, Claire. But what we do is uh, we background cattle. We buy feeders in the spring, uh, light feeders in the spring, and sell heavy feeders in the fall. And uh, it just kind of helps me uh, maintain my connection a little bit. Um, how long have you been on the job as executive director of the Farm Service Agency at this point? About a year, two uh, years? Just over, just over two years. Two so. years, two years, yeah. Um, well, how do you like the job? I, I really enjoy it. I, I like working with farmers. Um, there are so many things that we do to help them. Uh, you know, the the uh, food dollar that we spend as part of our income is so small here in the United States compared to anywhere else in the world. And um, farmers do a ter- terrific job of producing a crop for us that that's safe and uh, something that we can enjoy. But we need to support them and make sure that when things are difficult that they can weather through those things. And that's I, I appreciate having the ability to help with that. Yeah. Do you feel that small farmers have been impacted more severely by the things we talked about, the weather, the tariffs, uh, than corporate farms? And we don't have much time. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'd hate to say that one group has been affected by that more than another. Um, I think maybe the markets have been a little more difficult on, on the small farmers, and they have a little bit harder time recovering from that. But that's what we're here for is to help them. Wow, well, you're doing a great job, it sounds to me. Uh, This is Joel Johnson. He is the executive director of the Farm Services Agency for the USDA in Michigan. He's been our guest, and we wish you luck in the future. Joel Johnson. Thank you very much, Bill. Appreciate you having me on. It's been a pleasure. We'll be back next week with more.